morning. Um, so we're reading Romans chapter 8 from verse 18 to the end, and it's on page 916 of the Church Bible, if you have that. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Call out the elephant in the room. I had a haircut. <laughs> the pressure with someone like me getting a haircut is everyone wants there to be a story. There's not much of a story, I'm afraid. It just it happened. But, oh, actually, it was meant to be just long enough to tie back, and it's not. And I'm in that awkward in-between where it's just a bit... Anyway, that's out of the way. Let's pray that we can read this distraction-free and thank God for this wonderful passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Romans and just the clarity and the depth of the, gospel, the way the gospel is portrayed in these words. Thank you so much for the passage this morning. 
we just pray that you would help us to hear it and understand it clearly and you convict our hearts to trust and walk alongside you more and more uh, as you work through the power of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Does everyone know who Stephen Fry is? Most of you. If you don't, he's, um, he's a, Brit, a British... Uh, he's a doctor and an actor, and a, he was a TV show host on a, like a general knowledge quiz called QI for a long time, and he sort of tends to be thought of as a, a man with quite a lot of general knowledge, quite a broad amount of knowledge, uh, and a fairly philosophical kind of person. And he's a self-professing atheist, very strong atheist. And I once I saw a video, uh, an interview of him uh, in 2015, where he was asked this question, um, Suppose it's all true, that being religion, the, the Christian faith. Suppose it's all true, and one day you walk up to the pearly gates and you're confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him? And this is what he responded. I think I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I'd say. I think we all have to admit that's not an easy sort of thing to respond to. The, the, the question of suffering is actually one of the most difficult questions to have a satisfying answer for. If you've ever experienced um, significant suffering, of course it's hard. It really hurts. It's by definition an extremely, extremely emotional thing so in that sense, it actually it, it makes sense that it's very difficult to provide a theoretical or an intellectual answer that's, that's going to feel sufficient. It's never, something that's just theoretical is never going to feel sufficient in comparison to the pain that some people experience. But does that mean it's that, it, that it's impossible to have some kind of helpful response to this question of suffering? I don't think the Apostle Paul seems to think so, because he opens this passage in verse 18 by saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's a pretty bold statement, I think, if you were to make that to someone who's going through a lot of pain uh, and a hard time. And if it was read by itself, it probably seemed a little bit simple to be convincing or, or comforting. If you're, if you're in a lot of pain. That statement, I think, it, it essentially, though, stands as Paul's summary for how we deal with suffering as Christians. But it's not his whole answer. Before coming to that statement, Paul is assuming that his readers, that we have understood the weight, not just of those words, but of the entire seven and a half chapters that have come before it throughout this letter. It's the culmination of the understanding a follower of Christ has about the nature of their existence in the rest of their lives on this earth before the final judgment. It's only when we understand everything to this point in the book of Romans that Paul's statement 
in chapter 8, verse 18, holds its rightful significance to us. So that means it's, it's only when you understand chapter 1 that we all suppress God's truth and try living our own way and that God then gives us over to our own way and that includes living, living in a world where suffering is a reality. It's only when you understand chapter 2 that, that actually, when you understand that, we don't, it's not us who hold God to account. He will judge us. Then it's only if you understand chapter 3 that in his great love and mercy... God sent Jesus to take the wrath we deserve so that we might be justified, made righteous before him, spared his wrath, and that God is not harsh. He longs to be gracious, and despite we have wronged him. It's only if you understand chapter 4 that there's nothing we can do to earn this forgiveness or this favour with God. It's a free gift. It's only if you understand chapter 5 that Jesus' death is all that is required. The debt is paid if you'll but accept this gift. And it's only if you understand chapter 6, 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, which we looked at last week, we realise that even though we continue to live lives that are affected by sin and by the flesh, we are still free from its power, we're free from condemnation in Christ, uh, but more than that, we don't just come before God as people freed from sin, but as people who are adopted as his children. If we understand all of those things when we get to the passage this morning, that's what Paul expects us to have in the back of our minds when we read his statement in verse 18 so that we can see the weight of it. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, there's a lot more to it, but you can think of that as Paul's summary statement for the rest of the passage, which we're going to now unpack this morning. Where Paul starts from there is by explaining that suffering in this life, it shouldn't surprise us. If we look at verses 19 to 23, that's what we're looking at now, but particularly looking at verses 22 and 23 with me, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we e wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Suffering this life, it, it shouldn't surprise us because this creation, it's fallen from sin. The way Paul describes it in these verses, it's, it's, there's a sense that it's incomplete. In verse 20, he talks about how creation was subject to frustration. In verse 21, he describes it as being in bondage to decay. It's awaiting a time where it'll be liberated from that bond. And we as God's children, we feel that same tension. Intrinsically, we feel this incompleteness in the current state of creation. Verse 23, which I just read out, says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly at the present. You see, as we suffer, and we, when we experience pain, and when we feel that there is something wrong, I want to encourage everyone, that is actually exactly, exactly what you are supposed to feel right now. 
it's if we didn't feel frustration or discontentment with the world as it currently is, that would be a problem. And I think as Christians, we can all too quickly respond to suffering by saying that God is sovereign, He has a planet at all. We jump too quickly to verse 28, which says that God works for the good of those who love Him in the same passage. And that is true. That's all true. And we'll get there even today. But I want everyone to notice that it's not where Paul starts. He starts by saying that we are all groaning at the present time. We're feeling the incompleteness, the tensions of this fallen creation. And of course, the problem with jumping to God's sovereignty too quickly is oftentimes we can leave those who are going through a difficult time. We can leave them feeling guilty about their pain, about their sense of frustration, their longing for things to be different. Uh, We can leave people feeling that they shouldn't feel those things because we should be focusing on the fact that God's in control. But in this passage, we see that you are right to feel those things at different times. I want you to think about if you ever have experienced serious loss. The death of someone very close. And the feelings that that was like. Or if you've had to battle with chronic illness or serious disease or poor health. Maybe a general sense of of feeling overwhelmed at just some of the state of the world. Some of the corruption or different things we can see at large. Maybe think about what it's been like to go through hard times in relationships with others where you felt really disconnected from the people that you most want to feel close to, that you love the most. Perhaps relationships that can feel broken completely. Have you experienced a strong sense of loneliness at different times? Or humiliation? Or failure? I think all of us can relate to a feeling of acknowledging our own sinfulness time and time again and the wrestle with that. Think about if any of those sound relatable and those feelings of frustration that come with that, the feelings of sadness, of longing. Paul says we are supposed to feel distressed by those things as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. If we read on in verse 24 and 25, we we, we actually see that those feelings of incompleteness of tension of discontentment with the world as it is now well they they should point us to the hope of what we know is coming in the future even if we don't see it now look at verse 24 with me for in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what they already have but if we hope for what we do not yet have we wait for it patiently I think the trials of this life can sometimes occupy the forefront of our attention because they're in front of us, tangible, we see them. But these difficulties, they also produce a yearning for this redemption and that should remind us of our unseen hope that is yet to come. 
Our suffering should cause us to long for a future when everything wrong with the current world is made right. Finally, completely. And so we wait for it patiently. But even if we have such a hope, there's no questioning that suffering is difficult, extremely hard, extremely painful. And so Paul doesn't leave it there. He, he gives helpful reminders for those of us um, going through hard times to patiently persevere and look forward to that hope. So the second point in your notices, I have two subpoints here for each of those two ways that, that Paul says that God, God works to help us patiently and um, persevere in patiently waiting for that final freedom of creation and that final redemption of our bodies that we all long for. The first of these is looking in at verses 26 and 27. And it's the way the Spirit helps us in prayer to God, our God who always hears and always answers us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Have you ever had a time, to help understand what this is saying, have you ever had a time where you've actually recognised you need to come before God in prayer, but just had no idea what to pray, no idea what to say? Um, perhaps an easier, where an example might help, maybe a prayer of repentance. And it's a prayer of repentance you've repented so many times, coming back to God, repenting of your sinfulness, and when you've been in that position enough times, can it just reach a point where you don't know what to say anymore? After praying the same thing for the 50th, possibly 500th time, might feel a bit hypocritical. I don't know. But what do you say? Lord, I, I, I repent. Please forgive me. But I want you to help me stop sinning. Isn't that what you want to? But I'm here again. What do you say? Or maybe um, in a time of deep grievance, you try to come before God to ask that his will be done, but you don't know what, you just can't find the words because we don't know his will sometimes. And frankly, sometimes God's will and his plan can feel pretty confusing. Well, Paul here says that the Spirit leads us in prayer to trust in God and to pray in accordance with God's will, even when we don't really know what God's will is. So when we come to God, unsure of what to pray, unsure of what we should want or where things should go, this, here, here we're being told that we don't need to despair over not knowing what to pray for or being unable to find the right words being told that the Spirit actually intercedes for us and God hears and responds to exactly what we need. I hope, I hope most of you have felt the power of, of someone who's really good at listening, sitting beside you and just listening well, um, maybe when you are going through a difficult time and you don't, and as we're talking about, you might not know how to say exactly what you're going through, but they're just prepared to be there 
and, and be someone to listen. Well, God is the best there is at hearing us and understanding us. Verse 27 says that he's the one who searches our hearts and he knows the mind of the spirit that's interceding for us. He knows our weakness, our pain, exactly what we need, even when we find ourselves completely speechless. You can trust that he's listening, that he'll answer at the right time. He knows how he's shaping your character. He, he knows when it'll be over. He knows how it's going to end. He knows it all. But it's in those moments when we don't see it, when we, when we don't know how it's at work and we can't find the words to pray. Even then, when words fail us, God is listening. And through this intercession of the Spirit, we can be confident that our wordless prayers will be in accordance to his will. So that's Paul's first point on how God works to help us patiently persevere through this life. His second point is reminding us that God is, is not just the God who listens, but he's a God who's actively at work. He, he's working to bring all things to a triumphant conclusion, and it's a conclusion that's going to be good. It's going to be good. Good for himself, good for creation, and good for us. For us, the we, those of us who have been called to be justified, those of us who have been adopted as his children and who will one day be glorified. Here we get to verse 28 where he, said, he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here Paul's reminding us that this God who listens and who knows us, he's also in control and we can also trust that his plans are ultimately for the best in every sense of the word. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that God's will and the way he's at work is always going to be what's easiest for us, but what's best, what's good. And we can see that when we look at verse 29, which says that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, now, I hope all of us can agree that that sounds like a great thing to grow in Christ-likeness, to be more like Christ. But I hope you can recognize that that doesn't sound easy. Look at the suffering Christ went through. But on the other hand, look at what happened to Jesus after suffering at the hands of men. He was raised from the dead and now he's at the right hand of God, glorified and interceding for us. And Paul says that there is a glorification in the new creation promised to us too. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So just as Jesus suffered and was glorified, we, being conformed into his image, we endure suffering, but so that we too might be glorified as children of God. So, how do we trust that God's plan is ultimately good? We look to Jesus. We have confidence in that future because of what God has already done. Look forward to verse 32, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
If you can remember Reich's sermon in chapter Romans 5 a few weeks ago, this is a kind of a shout back to a similar idea in Romans 5, 9. Whereas because we have already been justified by Christ, we can be sure that God will not leave his work unfinished. And all things will be made right, made complete as they should be, in glory, just as Christ has been glorified at God's right hand. So in the meantime, we can trust that God's plans will be for the good of those who love him. Pain and suffering in this life, it it fuels our hope. And we look at what God has already done for us in Jesus and what he's promised for the future. We can see the way he, we can trust in the way he is at work now towards that end. So, those are two things to remember as we live in this life that, that has suffering. That we have a God who listens and who hears us even when we're lost for words. And we have a God who ultimately works for the good of those who love him. And so when facing pain and suffering in this life, let those feelings of discontentment, let those longings fuel your hope and trust in God's desire and his plan to make things better. Let them fuel your hope and your excitement for the day when all things will be perfectly redeemed. All right, well, where does... Where does all this leave us? Look at um, verse 31 and 32 again. Yes, there can be immense pain and suffering in this life, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Does our suffering really diminish the goodness of his love? That's the question we're coming back to. Uh, His love for us that even involved giving up his own son. What is our response to someone like Stephen Fry, who accuses God of being capricious, mean-minded, and stupid? If we experience suffering, does that mean that God has abandoned us? Does it mean he's unloving? Is he unjust? Um, The passage we finish with, verses 37 to 39, and these are very well-known verses. But they're often read in isolation, and I think for good reason, they stand up very well on their own. But, as I said at the beginning, I think they actually come with the significance of everything Paul has been explaining prior to this point in the letter. It's only when we we realise how incredible everything Paul has said so far, and understand it, that we can read the final words of this chapter in their full force. Not Not as just a gentle isolated reminder, but as a resounding anthem, an anthem of joy and confidence. It's when we understand that through Christ we have been justified before God. We have been made his children. We eagerly await the day when we will be fully glorified in Christ, when creation will be made new, when we will cast off the sinful flesh and be conformed into his likeness. We'll be with our God whose wrath is completely turned away, who speaks to us as children who has chosen us to be made right, to be justified before him, to share in the glory of Christ as heirs to a new creation. Does suffering mean that God has stopped loving us? Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our suffering doesn't mean God has stopped loving us. Amidst our suffering, no matter how bad it is, we can be totally certain of his love and nothing can change that. It's actually those who reject God who have no option but to fall into a worldview that is like this resigned acceptance that suffering is just a part of life, there's nothing to it but to carry on to try and find something to be happy about amidst the pain and hardship. If that's all there is to it, how much harder must it be to endure? But it's those of us whom God has adopted as children who live with the hope that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, uh, that through him we are justified and that we are now your children and that now even though we live in a world where there is suffering and there is pain, that we can be sure of your love for us and we can look forward to the day when all things will be made right in Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing about that love, how deep the Father's love for us.